Hey there, it's me, Malika. For the next few episodes, I'm handing over the reins to my colleague, Jennifer Glass, to let her share what she's been working on. And I'll see you soon. In August, temperatures in Baghdad easily top 110 degrees Fahrenheit, 44 Celsius. So on August 1st, 1990, it was a pretty hot night. There were very few air conditioners, and uh, we take our bets. All Iraqis on the roofs of our houses in, in summertime. And that's where Salah Nasrawi woke up the next morning, August 2nd. So I went down and I had a cup of tea. I was preparing to have a breakfast and go to the office. Salah was working as a journalist for the Associated Press, and it felt important to get to work early that day. I had some feelings that, you know, something is, something is going on, something might happen. 31 years ago, on a very hot August 2nd morning, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And the next year, January 16th, the United States military launched its first major war in the Middle East, Operation Desert Storm. 30 years later, we're telling that story in three separate episodes from the perspective of the people who were there on the ground. And they're voices you probably haven't heard before. An Iraqi general, a Kuwaiti naval commander, and the highest-ranking U.S. Navy SEAL, just to name a few. This war was the start of something, and it's really the story of the United States and the Middle East today. With that in mind, over the course of the next year, we'll also be telling these stories on our website, aljazeera.com, so look out for those too. And this is about war, so I do want to warn you, about 20 minutes in, things do get graphic. I'm Jennifer Glass, in for Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The radio was broadcasting some music. They used to call them you know, patriotic music. That was the first indication that uh, you know something is on the horizon. In Kuwait, August temperatures are a little cooler than Baghdad, just under 110 degrees Fahrenheit, or 41 and a half degrees Celsius. You get a breeze from the Gulf, something that Iraq was a bit bitter about not having as much access to. Omar, that's what we'll call him. For privacy reasons, he didn't want to use his real name. Omar is Kuwaiti. He lives in Kuwait. And that same night Salah was sleeping on the roof, Omar was going out to a party. I remember it was uh, Wednesday night. I was invited to my friend's house to play cards and have a bachelor party for one of my friends who's willing to get married. So we had the coffee, we had the kanafa, the sweet, the Palestinian sweet. That was the fun part. But then the conversation got serious. And there was a discussion about the Iraqi people surrounded the Kuwaiti borders. Iraqi tanks had started to appear around Kuwait, and it was making his friends nervous. And I said to them that it's it's very difficult uh, that one Arab country comes and attacks Kuwait. I mean, this is uh, ridiculous. Um, I don't believe that is going to happen. In Bursa, Turkey, the highs in August only reach about 87 degrees Fahrenheit, 30.5 degrees Celsius. 
So a lot of Kuwaitis, like Nasser al-Husaynan, a commander in the Kuwaiti Navy, like to vacation there. Actually, in August, all Kuwaitis go on vacations. It's not just me. I was a squadron commander, too commander and the squadron commander, one commander and the director of operation, we all in leave. Director of naval operation also on leave. So enjoying his leave, al Husseinin was sitting at home the next morning with his family watching TV. On the TV, I saw the news, of course, it was on Turkish. I don't understand Turkish. So I saw a lot of red arrows coming from the north heading south and was Kuwait map. And I said, what's happening? So I took my wife to buy her few things before we leave. And the shopkeeper told us, uh, no more Kuwait. Told him, how, how come? He said, there's no more Kuwait. And he called his neighbor and he explained to me that the Iraqi invaded Kuwait. Your country is finished. General Abdulwahab al-Kassab is from Baghdad. I am from Baghdad. I mean, even my family, you know, dated back in Baghdad, something like 200, 300 years. He'd spent the last decade fighting Iran, and for the past two years, he was starting to enjoy his life back home. I consultant to the chief of general staff. And in 1990, he was proud of Iraq's army under his president, Saddam Hussein. After eight years of war, it had grown big and strong. Iraqi art was one of the best in the Middle East. One of the best, of course. The fourth strongest in the world at the time. It was one of the best. Where were you getting your equipment from? Well, we had Russians, Soviet at that time. We had French. We had everything, a perfect modern army. And on August 2nd, he knew that Saddam had sent some of that army to the border with Kuwait. There was a planned maneuver exercise along the Iraq-Kuwaiti-Saudi borders, about 100 kilometers inland. Al-Qassab also knew that Iraq had financial problems after the war with Iran, and Saddam was asking for money and territory from Kuwait. There are some bitterness in the heart of every Iraqi on the way the Kuwaitis treated. The problem of Iraq after the Iraq-Iran war, and I agree that Kuwait and Saudi Arabia were very good supporters of Iraq during Iraq-Iran war. But once the war came to an end, the, the situation drastically changed. Kuwait started to pump oil too much. The prices of oil came down, and Iraq needs money to reconstruction after the war. There had been talks and negotiations, and now Iraq was demanding Kuwait hand over $10 billion or Saddam would invade. But Al-Qassab didn't think it would really happen. We heard from the radio. On August 2nd, Al-Qassab heard on the radio his own military had invaded Kuwait. It took us by surprise, not just me, the chief of general staff and the minister of defense also. It took us by surprise. But you're a general. You're a, a two-star general in the Iraqi military. I know, but, but it had been planned outside the proper military hierarchy. It was a planned design uh, within the auspices of the Republican Guard. Uh, only a couple of people who were aware of what was going on, I think three or four senior officers. General Al-Qassab was in touch with the General Chief of Staff regularly. He and me and the Minister of Defense, all of a sudden, on Thursday, 2nd of August, we heard from the radio. At 2 a.m. local time on August the 2nd, Iraqi troops crossed the border into Kuwait. You asked me about whether it is wise or not. 
I prefer that it never happened. We are two Arab countries, you are brothers. And Iraq recognized Kuwait. I'm not happy with it. Regardless, Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. The war had begun. Yeah, I was at home uh, putting a sprinkler system into my front yard. In San Diego, California, the August high hovers around 77 degrees Fahrenheit, 25 Celsius. Iraq, Kuwait, they were a world away, literally. And at the start of that day, they weren't the first things on then Navy Special Operations Commander Eric Olson's mind. And uh, I got called back to work that afternoon. So I went in and, uh, and we had a meeting and determined that somebody would be going, that I would probably be part of the task force, and that uh, we should begin to get ready. We should probably be clear about what Olson was doing for a living then. 30 years ago, I was the operations officer for a Naval Special Warfare Task Group, the Special Operations Arm, the Navy SEALs, at the rank of commander. Eric T. Olson is now a retired admiral, the first Navy SEAL to achieve four stars. But on that morning, he was about a little over a week from finding himself on a Saudi Arabian beach in charge of every other Naval SEAL deployed with him. Omar, meanwhile, had come home from his bachelor party in Kuwait City the night before and was on his way to work at the Sheraton that next morning. The famous hotel in Kuwait. And for whatever reason, he didn't turn on his car radio. And when he got to the office... I've seen one of my friends, he said, do you know what happened? I said, no. And he said, Iraq invade Kuwait. Omar still didn't believe it. And I said, oh my God, what happened? Maybe that's in the border. They cannot cross inside the city. And he said, no, they are a war inside the city. They are bombing, and I hear them by myself. I was in the Meridian, nearby to the TV station, Kuwait TV stations. I hear the bomb, and, and I was shocked. Oh, my God. Iraq had not only invaded Kuwait, it was now sitting on one-fifth of the world's oil. And Hussein An, the Kuwaiti admiral, was still in Turkey, trying to make his way back to Kuwait, or as close as he could get. I called my sister to ask her what's happening. She said, well, the Iraqis took over Kuwait. And I can see the soldiers, my sister telling me, I can see the soldiers on the street. I told her, no way, maybe those are Kuwaiti soldiers. She said, no, 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 I know the uniform of our Kuwaiti soldiers. Those are Iraqis. So from there on, uh, it was just a shock for me. He told us that while in Turkey, he ended up picking up the hotel and restaurant bills of other Kuwaitis there, who after the invasion no longer had access to cash. I saw some Kuwaiti men sleeping on the street and the woman sleeping inside the Kuwait Airways building. The woman and the children. It took weeks, but finally al Husseinan got out of Turkey. Eventually, he was able to fly to Bahrain, from Bahrain, I went to the embassy and they said, oh, they are waiting for you in Saudi Arabia. Your ships are there, your units waiting for you, you have to go to Saudi Arabia. So I joined my units there. His country was so close, he knew what was happening. But at that point, from Saudi Arabia, there wasn't a lot he could do. They did not want us to do anything stupid or provoke the Iraqis. So we were not allowed to start our radars or communication or do any exercises or anything. 
just sit and wait. It's hard to describe how frustrated he was. This was the last thing he expected. And thinking back over everything, he was starting to realize he had been part of Saddam Hussein's plan. Two weeks before the invasion, a delegation, Iraqi delegation, came to us and we took them around. We showed them all our operation centers, communication centers, all our preparations, weapons, everything. Because we thought they are just a brotherly country and it was good intention. And this helped them a lot. They knew the inside out of all our camps and military capabilities. And yes. And it wasn't just intelligence Saddam got before the invasion. Kuwait had given him another gift. Its military had stood down its defenses. We've been ordered not to load our missiles or ammunition or anything which provokes Saddam. We took all our ammunition out of our boat, our ships, our aircrafts, our tanks, our missiles. We just empty everything just to give them, because we know there are insiders from his people working with us. I used to have uh, one sailor, he's just a sailor, but after the invasion, we knew that he was a lieutenant colonel in the Iraqi Special Forces. It's not clear how many Iraqi infiltrators there were, but Iraq's pre-invasion strategy worked. They were in Kuwait. And now Omar was trying pretty hard to get out. I have to call my parents. I have to talk to my mom and I to call, to talk to my brothers. There was no communications, a proper communications. He was desperate and confused. There was uh, a really sadness. It took from me personally five days to understand what going on. It was shocked. We are Muslims. We believe that there is a common shared between those two countries, the Arabic language, the heritage, all uh, these principal things that we've been taught since we born about the Arab Union. And all the sudden is, is, is disappear. I cannot understand how, how they do, how they're doing this. And what is the purpose of doing that? Soon after he invaded, Saddam declared Kuwait a part of Iraq. And the second day he said that there is no Kuwait. He's, he, he wants to disappear the whole country. Emotionally, uh, for, for me, I could not understand that for, for a couple of days. Until the pictures has becomes like more clear and more clear. While he tried to figure out how to leave, Omar spent his days at the Sheraton as the room started filling up with Iraqi soldiers. A lot of uh, soldiers, they took my ID and they asked me what you're doing and I had to tell them that this is what I'm doing. He said it was dangerous just doing his job at the hotel. The first wave of guests was soldiers. Then the journalists started arriving. The war was televised. It was the dawn of the 24-hour news channel, CNN. Now more than ever, shouldn't you be watching CNN International? Robert Weiner was CNN's producer in Baghdad then. It was, in my mind, uh, an opportunity for CNN, being a 24-hour network, to really strut its stuff. And it was a story that was tailor-made for us. That interview with Robert was done by our colleagues at The Listening Post in 2011. I've seen people from CNN also. They came in. Omar didn't want to say the name of the journalist, but he did try to help him with his TV connection. 
He said to me, the way the channel of CNN doesn't work in my room. <laughs> Omar tried his best to fix it. At that point, CNN was the only access to news he had. The other channel is dead because the, uh, at that time there was no broadcasting over the microwave or over um, any kind of satellite. The Iraqis had blown up Kuwait TV in the first few days of the war. Omar was watching CNN to find out what was happening to his own country. And it wasn't easy. Try to imagine at that old days, if you want to watch the CNN, you pay money to watch the CNN. And I used to go within the invasion time because there's no channels. I used to go for the computer room and staying for two, three hours just only to watch the CNN. It was clearly news from an American perspective. It's funny, but when you hear the news, sometimes in Arabic, they want to say it in a different way or in a nice way. Maybe in English, they say it straightforward. At that point, it was hard for most people to keep track of what was happening in Kuwait. A young Kuwaiti girl had testified to the United Nations that she'd seen Iraqi military throwing babies out of incubators at Kuwaiti hospitals. CNN's Baghdad team went to investigate, but with Iraqi officials watching them the whole time. This is Robert Weiner, CNN's Baghdad producer, from that Listening Post interview again. Look, we don't want to be used to cover up possible atrocities. They were told they would be visiting six different hospitals. In the end, they saw one. Then they were ushered back to the airport. As we were driving to catch our flight to uh, Baghdad, the BBC was already reporting that CNN had been to Kuwait and determined no babies had been thrown out of incubators. Well, we were obviously being used by the Iraqis. Salah, the Iraqi journalist for the Associated Press, also made it to Kuwait, chasing the same story. We went to the hospital and I found myself the incubators were stored in one big warehouse. There was a Kuwaiti doctor on duty. So he told me they took incubators, but there are still here many, but not too many Kuwaiti patients, women, coming to the hospital for delivery. The Iraqis took some incubators, but not all of them. That girl at the UN was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the United States. It was likely she'd been in the United States since before the invasion. Her story was never confirmed, not by any news outlet or humanitarian group. But the message that Kuwait needed help was conveyed. And Salah says there were clear signs inside Iraq that Kuwait was being ransacked. Markets were uh, emerging full with uh, stolen goods from Kuwait. And at that time, everywhere you go, you will find that people were selling air conditioners, TV appliances, all kinds of exported equipment, cars. Over the years, the Iraqi soldiers who invaded Kuwait have been accused of attacking Kuwaiti civilians with axes, raping women, hanging body parts in the streets, and burning homes to the ground. So the popular army was in, in, in downtown Kuwait and other small towns and cities. These people are known to be very rude, very aggressive, and they are able to carry out you know, atrocities. Saddam himself he started talking about what they did with the people, especially 
people whom they suspect of being uh, in the Kuwaiti resistance, and they were rounding up people. Uh, people were disappearing. You know, very harsh treatment. And Kuwaitis were killed, including Omar's friends. Uh, unfortunately, there was a three guys from my neighbors. One of them is named Khalid. Omar says Khalid was at the first base that was attacked. Unfortunately, he died. And I felt really sorry. He was a nice guy. Naval Commander Al Husnainan was losing friends too. And just a warning, what he says is quite graphic. I can tell you all, all what I know directly. I mean, uh, there's Ahmed Rabazar by name. He's a police officer. He was shot in the head in front of his mother, in front of his mother, in front of his door. And one naval officer, also his, his friend of mine, he was beaten to death in a toilet in his, in his, in his house, in front of his kids and everybody. Uh, atrocity, uh, it's just too much, too many. Iraqi General Al-Qassab wasn't happy with Saddam's decision to invade Kuwait, but there wasn't much he could do about it, and soon he found himself in Kuwait with the Iraqi military. It was very early in the invasion, and from what he says, it didn't seem that bad. Kuwait uh, at that time was, uh, people were going, coming, the markets were open. The people who stayed in Kuwait, they were living their, their ordinary life. How long were you in Kuwait? Not very much, I mean, not very, not very long period. During those days, we were, you know, moving freely, I mean, and uh, nothing happened to us. He gave a rosier picture than the Kuwaitis we talked to, but he did recall one Iraqi being punished for his crimes there. I remember that one lieutenant colonel had been executed because he tried to loot something. An Iraqi, an Iraqi lieutenant colonel. Yeah. But uh, about tortures, allegations and counter-allegations, that's it. Do you think that there was anything you could have done? Many things could have been done. Many things. These days, after decades of U.S. wars in the Middle East, it's hard to remember a time when the United States was hesitant about getting involved there. But this was that time. The U.S. Marines had left Lebanon six years earlier. The U.S. had failed in its mission to retrieve hostages from Tehran four years before that. And Colin Powell, a Vietnam veteran and the head of the U.S. military as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, did not want to see the United States involved in another endless quagmire. Here he is in an interview broadcast in 1997. For those of us who were Vietnam veterans, we all have a view that says, if you're going to put us into something, then you owe the armed forces, you owe the American people. A clear statement of what political objective you're trying to achieve. U.S. decisions were happening slower than Kuwait would have liked, but they were happening. First, President George Bush announced sanctions, then sent forces to Saudi Arabia to defend the oil fields there. There is no place for this sort of naked aggression in today's world, and I have taken a number of steps to uh, indicate the deep concern that I feel uh, over the events that have taken place. Did you ever think that the United States or anyone else we're going to come to Saudi Arabia or Kuwait's aid. I, for myself, were, were 
100% sure. There was no any surprise because once the Americans came into Saudi Arabia, that's it. Al-Qassam was still holding on to hope that Saddam would change his mind, do things differently. Just to peacefully pull out of Kuwait. We could have uh, avoided the drastic situation which came. Saddam did not pull out. And on August 7th, U.S. President Bush announced Operation Desert Shield, opening the floodgates to rush military personnel and equipment into the region. This will not stand. This will not stand, this aggression against Kuwait. On August 9th, Commander Eric Olson and the Navy SEALs left California for Saudi Arabia. And on August 11th, they were in the desert, just nine days after Saddam invaded Kuwait. Our mission was to be ready for whatever happened. And uh, there was a sense that there would be an armed conflict. And we started meeting with the larger American force as it arrived. And as I recall, the first ones we met with were out of the 82nd Airborne uh, Division as they flew into Saudi Arabia and began to establish the real American presence just a day or two after we got there. America, U.S. was number one, and we are relying on her. Al Hussein, on the Kuwaiti commander, and his sailors were still sitting in the desert, waiting. Nobody had the power to do anything except the U.S. at that time. Nobody. Uh, nobody can pull up a collision like that. Of course, Saudi Arabia is very important, but if you don't uh, bring the U.S. on board, you cannot do anything. And that's why my units were the only Arab Islamic unit outside of the control of the Saudis. I went straight away under the American command because I wanted to work on the front line with the SEALs. With temperatures still upwards of 104 degrees Fahrenheit, 40 degrees Celsius, the Saudi desert was being loaded up with war machines. And not just American. There would eventually be a coalition of nations joining in. In England, it doesn't get much warmer than 71 degrees Fahrenheit, 21 and a half degrees Celsius in August. But in those days, Kate 80 was never in the UK for long. I was the chief news correspondent for the BBC for many years, spending most of my time working in television and working internationally. And in September, she found herself in the Saudi desert too. I was sent initially to Al Jubail, which is on the east coast of Saudi Arabia, which had become the hub in the preceding few weeks of an enormous importation of troops, equipment, materiel, and journalists. It was a very dusty, rather shabby town. It was her job to report on this military buildup. The main coalition forces, the Americans, the British, and the French, but there were also Arab coalition forces who joined in much smaller numbers. They included Egypt, Oman, Syria, part of the biggest international military coalition ever. I do remember getting a helicopter flight one day, and all we did was went in an absolutely straight flight, low, over what was an unending parking spot of trucks, 
fuel supply, huge great amounts of kit, goods, containers full of everything, food, ammunition dumps, lines and lines of small reconnaissance vehicles, enormous tanks, armored personnel carriers, and vast artillery. And all of this is stretching mile after mile as we flew over it. It was a jaw-dropping sight, jaw-dropping, and very hard to convey on television on a small screen. So, how would this all play out? America will not stand aside. The world will not allow the strong to swallow up the weak. And that's The Take. On Wednesday's episode, we'll hear about the very first operations of Desert Storm, America's war in Iraq to retake Kuwait. We'll hear where the bombs fell in Baghdad, and we'll hear about the mark all of this made on the Middle East, the United States, and the world until today. Be sure to listen. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with Ney Alvarez, Dina Kisbe, Nagin Oliai, Priyanka Tilve, Alexandra Locke, and me, Jennifer Glass, in for Malika Bilal this week. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan, Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer, and Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. In addition to the Desert Storm podcasts, we'll also be tracing the course of the war on our website, aljazeera.com, so check that out. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AJTheTake.